In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The Prison Reform Trust is nearly 40 years old. It's a charity. Um, it's it, it isn't a charity that actually delivers services to prisoners, but it is a, a charity that represents prisoners in terms of advocating on behalf of prisoners about their rights and the um, working to create a humane justice system in this country. So it's an advocacy, influencing think tank um, research organisation. Um, it's got a really, I think, and I would say this, I suppose, because I work there, but I do believe it has a real strong, credible reputation in research circles um, and with civil servants and ministers around the quality of the research that it develops. And we all know that policy in many ways, is built on robust research. So we're here trying to make sure that the prisoner experience and prisoner rights don't get lost in the debate about criminal justice. Great. And what do you do in particular for them? What's your role? So my role, I'm um, a senior management team member there, and I am the lead for prisoner engagement, prisoner involvement in our work my job is to make sure that uh, prisoners' voices, prisoners' experiences are interwoven into all of the work that we produce, into the strategic direction of our work. And I make the case that without the lived experience, the wisdom and the insight of the lived experience being at the heart of policy development, um, we won't ever get a solution that works for the people who are most affected. And you can't know what you don't know. So if you haven't lived through arrest, 
court, the sweat box, the induction at prison, the strip search, the cell. If you haven't lived that experience, if you haven't done time, it's quite hard to get to the heart of what we need to do without those people that have lived it being present in the room. If they can't be present in the room when we're discussing it, they can be present in the reports that we produce. Mm. Um, You spent time in prison yourself. Do you mind telling us briefly what you were convicted of and um, where you were an inmate? Um, So I went to Drake Hall Prison. Uh, That's where I served the most of my time. I went to prison in 2004, got an eight-year prison sentence for drugs and um, got eight years and served four in prison and then was released at the halfway point um, on parole and spent the other four years serving uh, the rest of the sentence on licence in the community and was engaged in work throughout that whole four years. How do you think having spent time in prison yourself helps support people who are struggling in Britain's prisons now? I think it's immense. I think there's there's loads of dimensions where the lived experience, my personal lived experience and the lived experience of others who are engaged in the debate about criminal justice. How does it support prisoners? I'll tell you, first and foremost, it gives prisoners a bit of hope because many prisoners in prison will think that there's no hope for them. They'll think, now that I've got a conviction, I'll never get another job. Now that I've got a conviction, I'll never have another relationship. Now that I've got a conviction, I'll never be accepted back into society. Now that I've got a conviction, my the hope for my life to live a meaningful life as an active citizen is over. So there's a great sense of inspiration when you see people who have lived it, who are prepared to share their story to inspire others. I think that's one of the greatest gifts of service that I can um, offer uh, to others in the same situation because I know that when I was in prison, I thought I was in the darkest hole I've ever been in my life. And I, you know, any beacon of light is something that makes you feel that you're still alive. Mm. So I think why I share my lived experience is because it inspires others. It inspires my peers. It inspires others that are in prison who are living through what I lived through between 2004 and 2008. And the other reason that I share my lived experience is because it's really easy to other people that we don't understand. It's really easy to other people and label people you know, as and write them off um, because people make dreadful errors of judgment or they, you know, commit crimes at a period in their life when they're not thinking, not considering the consequences or are in abject uh, circumstances where they feel they have no other choice. And it's easy for us to other people like that, isn't it? Because there's a lot of moral judgment about the acts, you know, rightly so. Yeah. But absolutely. we don't know that we don't, we, I think it's important to realise that you can live through a bad period in your life and come out of it the other end yeah. and have something, yeah. have something constructive to offer, offer to, the, to the debate. And because there's such a lot of stigma around convictions and a lot of, 
moral judgments about the people who go to prison. There are lots of people who who have gone to prison who then just want to disappear and, 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 and not talk about it. So it becomes an obscure experience that we still don't fully understand because the people who lived it are not encouraged or are frightened to speak out. And there's something about illuminating the discourse by speaking truthfully and openly about the experience, the impact, what worked, what didn't work, what could work, what should have been done and what didn't happen. Are you all right to tell us a bit about what it was like for you in prison and sort of things like the daily routine? I mean, obviously, I don't want to... I don't want you to sort of go through any sort of detail. But at the same time, I would like to get kind of an overview. Yeah. Just because lots of people don't really know. And then they'll they'll read sort of certain newspapers and the papers will give them an idea of, you know, either that things are very easy. It's prison or like, well, it's not. A hol- I just want to let you know it's not a holiday camp. Mm. You know, people always say, oh, it's a holiday camp. They sit there on their PlayStations. I want you to imagine Here's the here's the day to day reality for a me, but also when I was there, but also for the eighty odd thousand people that are in prison today, is that you're imagine being locked up in your bathroom. So there's a bed and a toilet and a little cupboard and a window that's probably got bars on it. But if it hasn't got bars on, it's a sealed unit with these little grills at the side. So you can't actually even open the window. Mm. There's just, you know, these little grills and you can slide them up to open or shut. But that means that there isn't a breeze that comes into that cell. And the door is locked and there isn't a handle for you to let yourself out. So so just, just that enclosed space in and of itself. It's hard to endure. It's not a bedroom. It's like, you know, like it's stark. It's metal beds. Well, when I was in prison, it was a metal bed with blood on the mattress and toothpaste all over the walls. Green bedding. And a pillow that isn't a pillow. It feels like a block of concrete. It's a lump of foam. And it's just stark and it's scary and it's confining and you are left alone with your thoughts. So prison is a difficult place to endure mentally. The physical conditions are difficult. You know, there are some cells in this in this country now that don't have toilets in the cells, so people have to use the bucket overnight. Imagine like or if you're sharing one of those small bathrooms spaces within, so sometimes there's two men in those cells in bunk beds, and you actually have to use the toilet in front of somebody who you may not know at all. I mean, that's these things are they're difficult, and when you arrive in the prison, and the first time you arrive, you have to take all your clothes off and be naked in front of two people while they search you and they want you to take your knickers off and bend over um it's a it's 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 a lot it's, it's, it's a lot when you get given a number and you're used people call you by a number 
not a name. You're not Paula anymore. You're MM, wherever. It's a, it's a complete sense of, you know, you know 100% that you've, you're on the wrong side of society now. You're outside of society. You're being punished for your crime. You, you're stripped of identity. You're stripped of your jewellery. You're, you're stripped. You're stripped of your citizenship. And that's quite a scary place because mostly we operate in the world feeling like there's a sense of safety, that there are people who will come to your aid if you need them. You know, whether that's family or the police or services, you know, that as a citizen you can reach out for support from the state. And suddenly the state has said there is no more support now. If I delve into the emotional, emotional, it, it, I, I, I understand. I realised it was that, mm. and that, that's quite a frightening place, you know. And I don't think you really ever recover from that. Even now, when I see policemen, I don't feel, you know, safe. I remember my daughter telling me one time, "There's two types of people in this world, Mum, aren't there? There's people who, when they see a policeman, feel safe." They think, oh, great, the police are here. Nothing's going to happen to me. You know, she said on a night out, she's with friends and they go, oh, look, it's OK. There's not going to be any bother because there's police around. And then there's another sort of people who've had like these sort of interactions with punishment who see the police and immediately feel frightened. I don't feel safe anymore because I've seen the other side of it. What about in in prisons in terms of support? I mean, are there any sort of programs in terms of education or in terms of rehabilitation? Because I mean, as far as I'm aware, that sort of the whole point of prison is supposed to be that people are rehabilitated and sort of then they're sort of okay to go back into society. It's not really meant to be a punishment. That I mean, that's sort of what I learned when I was doing my journey. I think I think I think yeah, I think that we we would all as taxpayers. When you think about the cost of sending somebody to prison at 40,000 a year, yeah, you would actually hope that people go to prison, uh, reflect on their crimes and, um, you know, like change their way, change their mm. direction. You would, yeah. you know, like, like we'd all, we all want that, don't we? Because we all want to, you know, I, I want to live in a safe society. I don't want, you know, violence and theft and assaults and you know I don't we don't want that in our mm. in our communities and so we operate from the notion that by separating people from their their lives sending them to these places they will sit and reflect and that and we would hope that they access sort of therapeutic support programs rehabilitative programs that give them the skills and equip them to come out of prison um as as, as bet I don't know with a with, a, with hope for a better future mm. but I think that people really need to to understand that that isn't the reality of how we deliver prison to prisoners it prisons is overcrowded it's under-resourced you know if the government's making cuts it's easier to cut the prison budget than the hospital budget isn't it because nobody really cares about prison so, you know, you're not going to get a public outcry 
if you strip out the staffing costs or you don't pay for the infrastructure. So there's been historical under-resourcing of the prison system. Historical. So you've got Victorian prisons, you know, with cockroaches, damp, um, broken showers, cracked tiles, you know, unhealthy places. You've got, you know, more modern prisons um, as well. But we've still got a prison infrastructure that isn't resourced properly. So the actual environment isn't good to deliver that sort of work in. You know, there aren't enough sort of meeting rooms. I went to a prison in Exeter the other day and, you know, healthcare is in a little corner of the prison, but can't really cope with the numbers now because the prison system is sort of nearly, well, it's overcrowded. It's beyond its actual capacity. It only manages the amount of people because it doubles people up and sometimes three people in a cell. So, so, so we're not coping because of the numbers. We're not coping, and because of the infrastructure, we're not coping. There's some great staff. There's some, there's some fabulous staff. There's some angels in disguise who go and work in prisons who really, truly want to help people. Really, truly want to connect with people. But it's difficult, isn't it? If you're, if the building isn't suitable for that, or there aren't enough staff, or you know, there's not enough staff to unlock the people to bring them to the therapeutic programs, for instance. And if, so. It's, a, it's an overcrowding issue why people can't really get involved in the rehabilitative programs. There's, there's long waits to get into programs. So you could be waiting a year, two years to get into a program. I went to program. I went to prison for four years and did no programs. None at all. So does that mean you were just literally sort of in your cell the whole time then or I mean you go to work you know you could there's 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 work in prison so that'll be like I don't know in the workshops packing screws or making hair nets or you know some sort of I suppose manual sort of labor you know for 10 pounds a week Mm. um or you'll be in the in in the kitchens cooking for the food or um in the gardens maintaining the gardens um, so there is work, but it's not like in many cases it isn't meaningful work that could equip you for a career when you come mm-hmm. out. Yeah. You know, it's not – you can do very low – only up to level two courses in prisons. That's like GCSE. So it's not college courses. It's not like, you know, going to train to be an electrician and when you come out you're definitely getting a job as an electrician. You'll have a low-level electrical qualification or your so so even the construction courses they're level two you know so you 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 wouldn't be equipped to then go out and be a tiler or go out and be a decorator they're not at the sort of level of skill that you could become a self-employed or go and get a job with a on a site I mean there are some good stuff rail track do some stuff they've got some specific uh work streams that equip people with jobs. So there's a massive demand for those. <laughs> you know, there is some good stuff as well, you know, so it's not all, it, it's a mixed, it's a mixed picture. Yeah. And it's a bit hit and miss then about which prison you t- get sent to, about whether or not the courses are available or not. Yeah. But I am quite shocked that you were in prison for four years and you didn't have um, anything sort of in terms of. No, there was no therapeutic courses. 
I was on the list for enhanced thinking skills, but I never made it to the course in four years. Can we talk because, a bit? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, you got it, yeah. I mean, I'm going back into my memories there. Well, I just want to talk a bit more about um, what kind of support inmates receive in terms of their mental health in general, because um, it sounds like not much, to be honest, but but are there any sort of programmes or... Well, I'm, go- I'm going to, well, I mean, ostensibly, yes. So there is, there are within the contracts by NHS England Health and Justice to providers in prisons, mental health is is commissioned. So mental health support is definitely commissioned and is definitely available. Mm. But it's But it's overwhelmed because... So many people who go to prison in the first place have some degree of mental ill health or drug substance misuse issues, yeah? Yeah. And prison itself can trigger mental health issues. If you think back to how how during lockdown have we did we feel when we had that sort of severe lockdown and we were in our house and only going out to buy essential supplies? Think about how we all felt anxious, missing our kids, missing our family, feeling constricted. But the policeman didn't come and lock your front door. You still had the choice to go out. But even knowing that we had the choice and didn't exercise, it was still very anxiety provoking. Mm -hmm. And lots and lots of we've had lots of debate, haven't we, about the mental health impact of this lockdown on people the rise in domestic violence and the rise in, in, in anxieties. So you imagine that double lockdown in jail. And just so listeners know as well, right now, prisoners are on double lockdown. So just as the community lockdown, prisons locked down. They suspended all visits and they locked everybody in their cells for 23 hours and 30 minutes a day. I mean, that's horrendous. And they are still on lockdown now. So even though the community has eased restrictions, prisons are still on lockdown. Social visits haven't been reinstated and prisoners are still behind the door 23 hours. They've maybe got another half an hour out now, a little bit of easing. But essentially prisons are still in lockdown mode because of the great fear of that they are essentially if the virus were to come into those prisons, it would could potentially devastate and cause death because many prisons have poor mental, uh, physical health as well as mental health. So a real worry about that. But so, so, so going back to my point about like, what's it like in prison right now? It's tough. Sorry, I lost my track then, Yvette. Where, what were we talking about before that? No, oh, it's fine. So we're speaking about basically how. Um... The mental health. Yeah. yeah. Are, are there mental health services? Sorry, I lost my track. Yeah. So, so. Let me start again. So um, that double lockdown, that intense solitary confinement or confinement in a cell with two, a man that you don't know in a bunk bed for 23 hours and 30 minutes a day with a window that potentially doesn't open, that only has these grills. You can imagine how stressful that is, how anxiety provoking that is, how that's triggering mental ill health. And we there is a lot of evidence that talks about that type of confinement, solitary confinement, has long-term mental health consequences. I mean, just for me, going to prison, for instance, 
I took the door off my bedroom when I came out of prison. I don't like to sleep with doors shut. I always have windows open all the time. And that was just four years. So imagine if you've done longer. Do you mind telling me a bit more in detail about the actual support that someone would receive um, in a prison if they had a long-term mental health issue? So you mentioned in there that basically about one in four women um, suffer with mental illness. Um, yeah. What I mean, basically, I've got bipolar disorder. So if I went to prison, what kind of support could I expect or would I not get any, do you think? I think it would be very hit and miss about I think it will all depend on, you know, I think that, yes, there are processes and protocols in place to um, to what's the word, to identify people with mental health issues. So when you go into prison, there's a form you sit in, you have a, like a little 10 minute interview. So imagine you've just come off, say, say you, you just got off, the, you've just been to court, you've been sentenced, you're scared. You go into the um, you get on the sweat box. That's the little, you know, those white vans that people see around on the streets. We call them the sweat boxes because mm. they're called sweat boxes because when you go in there, there's little there's little cells inside those vans. Mm. So you you get into a little, it's a plastic chair and a little metal box inside the van and you go and sit in there and you start, if it's hot, you start to sweat. So that's why they're called sweat boxes. Mm. So, so you've gone through that and you turn up at the prison You've been told to take your clothes off. You've got to stand naked, top top off, show, you know, take your bra off. <laughs> you know, all of that is really stressful, isn't it? And then you mm. see a nurse. Do you think you would, and then she'll ask you some questions. Do you feel suicidal? Have you ever tried to commit suicide? What's your mental health like? Do you think that you would tell them that you were bipolar at that point? Well, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, the thing yeah, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what, what if you maybe you just do, do? you know what I mean? Like, that's the sort of assessment. It's done like that, and it's a, it, it's quite. Um, it, it will depend, wouldn't it, on the whether there was a big queue, whether you got the time and the space and the privacy to discuss your health needs, yeah. whether you felt confident, whether you felt tr- that that would be treated with confidentiality, whether. Whether you were minded to tell somebody at that point, what would be the consequences of telling them? Well, also for me, it would be depend on sort of the age because you know I'm 38 now anyway, and yeah. so um, I'm managing it fairly well. I know my meds. I sort of know what I'm doing yeah. with it. But I mean, there'd be a huge difference for me between being in prison and being bipolar now, where I would, I'm sure I say I would say about the fact that I had it, yeah. and I'd also tell them what meds I needed and things. But there'd yeah. be a huge difference between that. And between, say, um, being incarcerated at age, you know, as a teenager or in my 20s, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't on mood stabilizers and I didn't even know I had bipolar disorder. There you are. So there you are. There yeah. you are. So, that, so it's a sort of like it, it would, there's a lot of um, dependencies about whether or not you would utilize that assist, assessment moment to let somebody know that you had a mental health, because it would, it would depend on whether you were cognizant of the disorder in the first place, wouldn't it? Mm and also about trust you know because it felt for when I went through that it felt very much like a process and a tick box exercise and I don't think that I was I didn't want to show anybody I was scared yeah I felt like I needed to be tough do you know what I mean and I didn't know what was ahead of me it was my very first time in prison I didn't know who to trust what to say what I'm supposed to say 
So I think there's a lot of, I think people with severe, you know, obviously when you get onto the wings, people will be assessing you in the induction period to whether or not you're coping, whether you come out of your cell, whether you socialise, whether you, you know, you appear to be coping with the stress. So there are, there are um, officers on the wings who will be assessing and observing. And I think that if you have a severe mental illness that is very visible, you know, like you're acting like oddly, not not socialising, staying in your bed, you know, not not communicating. I think that would be picked up. The sort of very severe indicators would would be picked up and then you'd get a referral to the mental health support team and then somebody would hopefully come and see you. Yeah. And you would get a mental health nurse, you know, to come and speak with you and you might get referred to therapeutic support, you know, group work or or sort of one to one work. You know. You might. You know, and if you're very, very ill. Um, yeah, I have read a fact here. Look. According. Men waited too long to be transferred to mental health care in seven of 10 prisons in 2017 to 18, according to the HMIP inspectors. So then you would be if you were so unwell that you couldn't cope on the wing, you'd be placed in the segregation unit, maybe for your own safety so that there's better oversight, you know, one to one oversight of you and more access to the mental health support. But say you were waiting to be you were so ill that you needed to go to a mental health hospital. That's a long wait. That could be months. And then, of course, there's a concern of what happens in those months if somebody's very ill. Absolutely. So that, that, that there's a lot of process to go from releasing somebody from a prison cell to a transfer to a mental health hospital. And you see this, this, this fact here. This is according to the inspector, the government's own inspectors. Men waited too long to be transferred to mental health care in seven of 10 prisons in 2017-18, mostly due to external issues, including the national shortage of secure mental health beds. So, so if you're very ill and prison isn't the right place for you, you will eventually get transferred out, but it will be a very long wait. Mm. And, you're, and you could get so 900 here in nine in 2018, 958 people were transferred from prison to a secure hospital. But if you think the prison population is, you know, in the 80,000s, yeah? yeah, and less than a thousand people transferred out to a secure hospital, right? But what did I say? Four percent of what was it? What were the facts there? How many um, heroes? 16, 15% of men in prison reported symptoms indicative of psychosis. 15% of 80-odd thousand isn't, doesn't equate to 900-odd that got transferred out to secure mental health hospitals, does it? What would you say are the key things that the government should do today to improve prisons? First of all, stop sending people with mental health issues to prison. So NHS England has funded a project called the National Liaison and Diversion Project, um, which has multi-agency teams who visit people in custody, in the police custody 
suites to identify people who've got mental health issues so that we're not they're not getting sent to prison they're being diverted into the mental health system rather than criminal justice system mm. and I worked on that I worked on that um, a few years ago I worked um, on the national program and I think that has immense benefit understanding that sometimes people's mental health means that they're not they're not culpable in the same way that we sure. define culpability Sure, and, and sure. I think, and I think that's so. One thing: investing more in liaison and diversion. So, an earlier identification of mental health issues, getting people earlier support. So, because actually, if people end up in prison, that's it's sort of a failure of prevention, isn't it? It's a failure of not picking that up earlier and not doing something to prevent that. So, liaison and diversion. That's what the government should do. They should be preventing people. They should not be sending so many people to prison. Prison should be reserved for the most, the gravest of crimes, because it's such a serious thing to do. Is there support for people if they decide that they want to sort of stop doing drugs or anything like that, or is are people just sort of left? To their own devices. No, I think there is just as there is mental health support, and there is there and there are drug treatment providers in prison. There are, yeah. Mm. But it's but the, we. But this is about a. It's about motivation for drug use, isn't it? Motivation to stop, because mostly people are using drugs because they're they've experience some sort of trauma in their life at some point or they've got a dual diagnosis with mental ill health yeah that is all linked to some sort of traumatic experiences somewhere that they're hiding from and addiction cycles are hard to break aren't they so you need to you need to reach out to those services as much as they reach into you so I think there are there are um, yes there are addiction services in prison we need to encourage and support people to access them you know and to sustain their engagement with detoxing from drugs but it's a scary thing to do if you've if you're not in the most supportive place what could sort of somebody do like a friend or family member to support someone who's well first of all sort of in prison but also recently come out of prison uh just rally round I think that um, if you've got, a, if you know anybody who's in prison right now, remember the humanity of, the, remember their humanity. Like, don't always remember them by the offence and try to have compassion and understanding for them, you know, like, and also try to be supportive because prison's a lonely place. You're quite devoid of contact with people who, who really genuinely care about you. And that can be, a really deep place of isolation so send them a letter send them a card letters you know oh my god letters in jail it, it was a good day when I got a letter I used to think that this is a good day like if there was we used to go at four o'clock to the post room and you used to have to look at the the list and if there was a tick by your name it meant you had a letter and oh my god my heart would jump with joy I think oh my god somebody's actually written to me today you know, like, and I'd be smiling <laughs> until I queued up to get my letter. So send them a letter. That was lovely when he's get a handwritten card, the old fashioned way. But you also can use um, email a prisoner. So if you know their prison number and you know their 
um, the prison that they're in. You can log on to email a prisoner. You have to pay 40 pence, but you can send an email. And you can attach photographs in many prisons now to the email. So that would be nice. They'll get that pushed under their door or they'll queue up to collect their letter. And that will be a good day for them. And they'll remember that they're connected to somebody. And that connection might be the hope that drives them to healing and drives them to, I don't know, ask for mental health support instead of struggling behind the door or ask to go to see the drug treatment provider instead of trying to dodge that sort of difficult moment when you say, I'm an addict and I need help. So you never know. We never know what those acts of kindness, what they might engender. I remember people who were very kind to me and I look back at them now and think they were angels in disguise. So this is goodbye from mentally yours. So go away, enjoy your day, get on with all your chores from mentally, 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 mentally yours. Mentally yours. Mentally yours. Mentally yours. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.